0: And Cassidy Zachary. So I want to start today's fashion history mystery with a bit of slightly humorous trivia April provided via my husband. And Hello, um, Sean. <laughs> this is the question. Who is the only member of ZZ Top without a beard?
1: Oh, I have I have no idea. Unfortunately, that that genre of music, while I do appreciate it, isn't exactly my jam. Does that make any
0: sense? (laughs) So I don't know, Sean. You've stumped me. You win. (laughs) I owe you a beer. The only member in ZZ Top without a beard is the drummer, and his name, April, is Frank Beard. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, I was totally I totally had this already to ask Christopher and then completely forgot. So you had to um had to have my <laughs> little bit of humorous <laughs> trivia today. Uh but it's it's a little ironic, I think. But so today's fashion history mystery comes to us from listener William Harris. Hi William. He wrote to us and said, howdy, April and Cassidy. I love the podcast, and it's a highlight of my week. I look forward to every episode, and I was so excited that there's now two episodes a week. As I was listening to today's episode, I wondered if a future episode could talk about the history of body hair standards, especially men's facial hair. I know there's been trends of different styles of facial hair versus being clean-shaven throughout history, but is this something that could be its own episode?
1: Oh my gosh. So I love this question. Thank you so much for writing to us, William. And to answer this, actually, for the very first time, we're going to have a guest on our fashion history mystery, Minisode. sode um, We're going to talk to Dr. Christopher Oldstone Moore. Christopher is a senior lecturer in history at the Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, where he teaches and writes about modern European cultural and gender history.
0: But, April, he is also the foremost expert on the history of beards and men's shaving practices. His book of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair, was published in 2017. And what he has to say might just surprise you. Christopher, welcome to the show. Christopher, welcome to the show today. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Kenny, I have to know, why a book about the beard?
2: Well, I'm a lecturer at at the university here in Ohio and I was looking for ways to introduce some social history aspects into my class on ancient and medieval Europe. And so I looked into beards and shaving, trying to find out about that and found out that there's little to nothing about it. It had been completely neglected by scholarship. And I thought, well, why not me?
0: (laughs) Perfect. And so what is it about the beer that was so fascinating or proved to be so fascinating to you throughout your research?
2: Well, one of the things, of course, as I just mentioned is that it, nobody's looked into it, so every time I'm looking at it,', it I'm, I'm, I'm like the first you know right. uh, to do this, and that's very exciting and, and, and very unpredictable. So every time I would go into a new era of time or place, um, I wouldn't know what to expect, and I would find on a remarkable amount of material that I had no idea. In fact, no one had any idea was there. And and so that was the real joy of it.
0: I really like that you write that the idea that facial hair is a matter of personal choice remains popular despite abundant evidence to the contrary. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But you write in your book that Alexander the Great set the standard for the quote unquote clean shaven man as the marker of masculinity. And that's especially interesting because the shaved face in many ways today, remains this established norm for um, manliness. So mm-hmm. how, how did Alexander the Great set that standard?
2: Well, by conquering the world. Uh, <laughs> this is a short answer to your question. Uh, the world as it was known in those days. I mean, um, Alexander the Great, you know, in a sense, reshaped all of Western history by expanding Greek culture um, in the entire you know, uh, Middle Eastern area. And establishing kind of a, a, a this norm of civilization that lasted for uh, some 400 years, um, called the Hellenistic Age, and because he looked different from the the older Greek style of beards, uh, and he, instead he shaved himself and looked uh, eternally young and purpose, and died young, and his face was on coins and statues and paintings, and his image was everywhere as the the standard of power and honor and authority. And so uh, Greek men adopted that standard and held that standard true for, as I say, about four centuries. And then the Romans picked it up. I, I'm including the Romans in that four centuries. Uh, and then when the Romans rose to be the masters of the world, they looked like, uh, the Hellenistic Greeks, the uh, sh- clean-shaven look, and when you—this is kind of where I got started. I, I was thinking to myself, why does sh- why does Julius Caesar shave? Why does Augustus look so clean and young sh- and clean-shaven? And um, that's that's the answer.
0: And do you have an idea of why Alexander the Great decided to shave when, prior to him, the standard was a bearded face as the symbol of masculinity and power?
2: Yeah, the answer to that is that he he thought very highly of himself. In, in <laughs> fact, he he really uh, believed himself to be a god, uh, li- quite literally. Uh, especially in his, <laughs> perhaps as he won battle after battle, it seemed to confirm that fact. By that I mean he thought of himself as Achilles or as Heracles. So technically, I guess demigod, um, and both of those you know heroes were portrayed in late classical art as beardless um, and youthful. And the reason for that is that, is the convention of representing that to indicate their divinity, that they cannot age, they do not age.
0: Right. And so the beardless man after Alexander the Great had really, and continues to be the standard for masculinity for centuries. And with the exception, you write, of four beard movements. So can you briefly talk about each of these movements and why the beard made a comeback in each of those periods?
2: Okay, well, each of those beard movements it really represents a sort of an ideological shift in civilization that involved the reconstruction of the concepts of power and authority, and consequently masculine norms. And when what you see then is that gets represented in a change in attitude uh, towards beards. And the first of the movements is in the second century. And it's a reaction against that Alexandrian style. Uh, It was really triggered by Emperor Hadrian, uh, of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, um, who was a real devotee of Stoic philosophy. Now, that's Greek-derived philosophic school, which believed that What you needed to do was to follow the rules of nature and that men should therefore wear beards because that's what nature gave them. And Hadrian actually really believed that. And more than that, um, he believed that by adopting the beard, he was setting a different standard for what an emperor should be. An emperor should be an educated, thoughtful, philosophical man who ruled by virtue of his his virtue, <laughs> by virtue of his virtue. <laughs> and um, that was, in that sense, the, the ideological change there. And then that style became adopted widely, uh, as, he, as he said it. But um, <laughs> shaving returns uh, later, not too much later, uh, as a restoration of the old uh, Alexandrian style. and then, But then in the feudal age, the new feudal nobility started to adopt beards as a sort of symbol of their uh, military greatness. And then in the Middle Ages, you have a divergence. You you see in the Middle Ages, you have this dual power idea. there's There's the power of the sword and the power of the cloth, the church. And the church adopts the shaven look and the feudal nobility adopts the beard as sort of symbols of their different sorts of power that they have. But uh, I will say that in the late Middle Ages, the idea of shaving returns again because um, the idea of the goodness and orderliness uh, of the church uh, is adopted by secular men as well. And so shaving returns. Uh, Then the third movement is in the Renaissance, where there's again another ideological shift, which is toward the authority and prestige of nature. As opposed to the old spirituality and you know, otherworldly heavenly concepts of the middle Ages, and then um, that that goes for a little while, about a little more <laughs> than a century, and then shaving returns again. And then in the nineteenth century, you have your fourth uh, beard movement. And I'll say that the shift here is towards what you might call a democratic masculinity. In the revolutionary age of the late 18th and 19th centuries, you have the idea that all men, and I say men, uh, are empowered with political and individual rights. And that gets represented eventually in embracing masculine nature. Um it's delayed, you say, well, well, it didn't happen in the early 19th century. It gets delayed because, in a sense, in the early 19th century, beards were associated with the, the assertion of too much empowerment, right? The radicals, the leftists, the revolutionaries. You, If you watch Les Miserables, you, know, you see those young, bearded revolutionaries. And that's what scared a lot of the more moderate and right, right-wing guys. because, and, and so they didn't dare grow a beard because it would make them look like radicals. And so they. Um, it wasn't until radicalism was over uh, that uh, that that beards became general. Um, then in the 19th century, and then uh, 20th century shut that down, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are uh, have been in a long shaven era.
0: And I think that's really interesting, too, because you write a lot about how, you know, society has really set these standards. And it's not just societal standards, but places like the military. You can't, you can't cut your, you have to cut your hair, you can't have beards, etc. And so it's really interesting that we align women with these, being beholden to all these societal standards of beauty. And yet men are too. And I really never thought of it until reading your book. So the beard has been making a comeback as of the past 10 years or so, or at least we're seeing a lot more beards. But what would make its reappearance of movement? Are we in a beard movement? Will we ever be in a beard movement again?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's those are the questions I've been puzzling over for a long time. And of course, there's really no answer because now we're out of history and we're into the present and we're sort of in it. and It's harder to see where all this is going. Uh, But it hasn't formulated itself into a beard movement, and the reason is, I think, that there aren't quite, well, we live in a multivalent society, and that means that we just don't have an established authority, cultural authority, which dictates to men as clearly as it has in the past just exactly what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to groom themselves and and dress and behave. Um, and it, we live in a very fluid time. And uh, that's good, you know, in many ways, but it does mean that we don't have a clear idea. Uh, we have multiple models of masculinity, lots of experimentation going on. Uh, instead of having authority now in the early in the early 20th century, for example, as you mentioned, it's the it's the military and the state and the corporations which are all telling men what they have to do to be proper men. Um, and we, uh, even those elements have broken down. I'll give you just one simple example. You know, Walt Disney Company, <laughs> a powerful cultural force, had always had <laughs> for many years in its existence uh, a a uh, very strong dress code for both men and women. And for men, it was an absolute ban on all facial hair uh, until, until about, um, about eight years ago. Um, that's when it finally broke down and Disney now allows employees uh, to have modest facial hair. Um, and so that represents to me an example of how you know the authorities are breaking down. But I will also say, I will let your listeners know, the Supreme Court ruling uh, of 1976 still stands that corporations, employers, have the right to dictate to their male employees, uh, their facial hair standards, um, and so in other words, Americans actually do not have the, the right uh, to their facial hair if their employer doesn't want to give them that right. And I want people to understand that. Uh, and and that comes to your point that you made earlier that we think, oh, you know, facial hair is a matter of personal choice. Well. Uh, look at the law. It's right. not. Uh, and that's a reflection of the fact that the way that you do your facial hair represents sort of cultural and social standards. And those standards are going to be upheld.
0: Until all those men out there start challenging them and start growing and wearing their beards.
2: Well, and I, and I say that, and I, it's a, it's a, as I say, it's a mixed bag here. Because yes. On the one hand, you don't have the absolute right. On the other hand, most corporations like Disney are not trying to enforce their rights on over their employees very strongly. Um, so there is, in fact, a great deal of leeway.
0: And it, it's just really fascinating and interesting to think, oh, we're in the 21st century. We're, we've progressed so long. And then to realize that these standards are still enforced, upheld, and law. Yeah. So um, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, So dress listeners, do you have a choice to wear your beard? That is a question I hope you all consider after listening to this episode. Christopher, thank you so much for being here.
2: Well, it's been fun. Thanks.
0: I totally agree with you, Cass. We talk a
1: lot about the societal standards that women are beholden to, but it's also really fascinating to consider These standards in relationship to men, you know, I I think that a lot of our male listeners might be asking themselves, um, as you said, do you make that personal choice to have or not to have a beard? And or, or is it the fact that society is making that choice for you?
0: Yeah. And coincidentally, April, I was walking out of a store yesterday and I noticed that this woman in front of me, she was wearing shorts and she had really long leg hair. So it was obvious that she did not shave. And it made me realize that I had not really considered this while writing this episode that these same virtuous ideals of the quote unquote clean shaven male also applied to women. So I'm so used to shaving and I, I do only shave once a week, mind you, um, but I'm so used to it. I've been doing it for so long that I hadn't even considered it as something that I have to do because society really has told me to. I mean, I distinctively remember the first time I shaved. I did not ask my mother. I was supposed to ask my mother. I just took her razor and did it. And I it really felt like this rite of passage. Um, I really felt like I was growing up by doing that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I remember that too. And also, um, I remember the first time that I actually plucked my eyebrows because I I would be full-on Frida Kahlo if I didn't pluck or wax my eyebrows. And so um, I think that actually in the past, somebody has asked us to do a history of women um, using depilatory practices. So maybe we will get into that in a future fashion history mystery episode. Um, but before we sign off, Cass, I would just like to encourage all of our listeners who happen to be on Instagram and you want to, like, put some fun in your day, there's this Instagram account called Beards, and <laughs> it's these two best friends <laughs> who live in <laughs> Portland, Oregon, and they have ginormous beards, and they use them almost, like, as an art project. Awesome. So, let's say... <laughs> It might be Easter, so then all of a sudden they glue all these, like, Easter eggs to their beards. Or maybe it's Christmas. It, you get where I'm going with this. But oh, yeah. I, it, it's it's one of my favorite things of the day to wake up and see
0: what they're doing. So, check that out. Absolutely. And any other fashion history news, April, that we want to discuss before we get out of here? Well,
1: you and I have not talked about this, but um, it goes without saying that we're both obsessed with Game of Thrones. True. And uh, if you want to, like, speaking of Instagram and tying it in, uh, the museum at FIT um, this whole past week has done (laughs) their Instagram feed of comparing the costumes that were in Game of Thrones to actual fashion history. And it has been the most amazing. Like, happy space for me all week.
0: It really has. It's really cool. So, they've been, like, putting pieces of their collection up against, you know, some of our favorite costumes from Game and characters from Game of Thrones. I think they suggested something that Drogo the Dragon would wear, so. (laughs) That was my all-time favorite. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean... We will. We don't need to go into how disappointed we were or I was about the ending. That's no, okay. No, we, we're 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 are <laughs> in this together, girl. We'll we'll keep that conversation to the outskirts of this uh, podcast. But I would, in case you haven't seen it already, <laughs> yeah. But with the end of this show, I just we would be so remiss to not talk about the incredibly. Uh, beautiful, exquisite costumes that were created by the most skilled and talented of artisans and makers, led by the costume designer Michelle Clapton. I mean, the the amount of artistry featured in in these costumes over the past eight seasons are just
1: incredible. Yeah, uh, basically, like everything that Khaleesi wore in Dorne, I was like, "How is this not in my closet?" I know. So beautiful.
0: Yeah, the incredible. And I did a little bit on uh, my art address Instagram about the embroidery. There's a couple great articles out there that talk about the embroidery that was done by Michelle Carriger. And it's just because you don't, we watch TV, it's not on the big screen. A lot of those details were lost. Um, but for instance, Sansa Stark's wedding gown in season three, mm-hmm. there is this like incredible. Like intricate and symbolic store embroidered story that Michelle put on her dress, um, you know Michelle Clapton, who's the designer, talks about how the costumes are always telling stories, and this started yeah. with a reference to the Tolly fish, and then the Stark direwolf, and then it it like wraps around her body and ends with the Lannister lion at the base of her neck, so. There's all these details that we don't really see that are there and have always been there since the beginning.
1: Yeah, and I really love how, like, we've seen this, like, pretty massive shift in how costume design um, is being approached for film and TV recently. Like, in terms of, like, authenticity or even, like, even in this arc where, like, obviously this is a fictional Story, right? It's a fictional past, perhaps, but but like the level of craftsmanship and and detail and thinking it out that's going in. This is something that didn't happen in the past necessarily.
0: Um, I mean, I think it always has been there, but it just depends, you know, on like your budget, the time that you have. Ah. I mean, Game of Thrones has just this incredible amount of money. I think um, that was put into it, thanks to HBO. And so, I mean, Michelle Clapton talks about how. The armor and costume are 99% made in-house, and then she has leather workers, dyers, metal workers, cutters, printers, embroiderers, dress fitters, everything you can possibly imagine working for her. Yeah, it's incredible. And (laughs) let's keep it up because it's amazing. Yes, I can't wait to see what she goes on to next, um, and what uh, wonderful things are out there. And you know, actually, April, while we're talking about it, can we briefly mention Gentleman Jack? Because now <gasps> that Game of Thrones is over, that is what I am watching. <laughs> I'm not even minorly obsessed. I'm massively I am obsessed. obsessed.
1: Yes, it's so good. And that, like, the eight late 1820s, early 1830s, are probably like my least. Favorite period too. of fashion history, it's me so too. weird. It's very strange. It's so
0: artificial. It's so staged. It's so. And we're talking about dress listeners. Those giant good-go sleeves with skinny little waists and and full skirts. I mean, it's an incredible period for like the artifice of dressed. I guess. And um, and
1: for me, it's the hair. Oh, it's it's insane. the hair that gets me every single time. Like. Yeah. Because we actually have fashion magazines from this time period in, the, in our collection at FIT, like I'll, I'll just be flipping through them, and 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 it's these very strange, bizarre hairstyles. That involve a lot of loops and yes. curls, and your hair being like piled up on top of your head. And like sometimes the fashion magazines even say, "Oh, if your hair isn't tall enough, like put a bracelet, put one of your bracelets under it to hold it up." <laughs> That's like. Legit advice from the fashion magazine. Yeah.
0: yeah, but the I mean that I am really, really enjoying this show. It's about Anne Lister, who was um, a real life uh, woman. She was kind of an aristocrat, um, a woman of very well off. Um, she's a lesbian, and not really a closeted lesbian, I think, because I mean. For social society rules, etc., she would never have said she was, but she really lived openly as a um, as a gay woman during this period. And it's really about her love affair courting um, someone who ultimately would be her life partner, a fellow aristocrat. Yeah, and it's, it's this beautiful love story. And she kept a like um, an incredibly detailed diary. So this show is based on her diary. The costume designs are by Tom Pye. Fantastic job all around, everyone. It's very entertaining. The whole thing is like perfect. Nailed it. They nailed it. Yes. Thank you, Tom, for restoring my love or giving me a love and appreciation of 1830s costume that I didn't (laughs) have before.
1: (laughs) And I think that does it for us this week. Address listeners, may you consider the question of do you shave or do you not shave next time you get dressed?
0: And please tune into our full-length episode this coming Tuesday. And please, please write to us if you'd like to submit a question for a future hat fashion history mystery. You can email us at dressed at iHeartMedia.com or, of course, direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. As always, a special thank you to
1: our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Bye.